You are listening to the Transforming India podcast, jointly brought to you by the Deepak and Neera Raj Center on Indian Economic Policies at Columbia University and the Times of India. I am Arvind Panagariya, Director of the Raj Center and Professor of Economics at Columbia. My co-host on this podcast is Professor Praveen Krishna. He is a Professor of International Economics and Business at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome, Praveen. Hi, Arvind. Uh, delighted to join you for episode 18 of the podcast. The Transforming India podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please go ahead and subscribe and follow it on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Arvind, a number of issues have arisen recently relating to India's financial sector. In the current episode, we have a special guest on the podcast to discuss these issues, both on the banking and the non-banking side of it, and the implications of these issues for India's economic growth. Dr. Viral Acharya is a CV star professor of economics at New York University's Stern School of Business and an academic advisor to the Federal Reserve Banks of New York and Philadelphia. From 2017 to 2019, Dr. Acharya was a deputy governor at the Reserve Bank of India, the RBI, where he was in charge of monetary policy, financial markets, financial stability, and research. Most recently, he's also the author of the book, Quest for Restoring Financial Stability in India. We're delighted to have him join us on the podcast. Welcome, Viral. Thank you, Praveen and Arvind. My pleasure to be on the podcast. Wonderful, Viral. Just to start on a lighter note, I recently tried to check you out on Twitter. So I found a Viral Acharya. First thing it said was, I'm not the RBI Deputy Governor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thankfully not on any social media. All right. To get to the serious note now. Viral, I want to start with pre-COVID and the last eight quarters of the pre-COVID growth had seen steady decline. Each successive quarter showed lower growth rate than the previous one. What role do you think the stressed financial sector played in that decline? Do you think that it was the principal cause of the decline or there were multiple factors which were more or less equally responsible for that growth decline? Yes, Arvind. My experience in these sorts of growth slowdowns is that it's hard to pinpoint the slowdown to exactly just one factor. But historically, what has been found is that when the banking sector as a whole is undercapitalized, certain parts of it may be better capitalized than others. But as long as a substantial part of the banking sector is not well capitalized, it doesn't lend well. It usually does either zombie lending, which is to keep its distressed borrowers afloat, or it does lazy lending, which is to primarily keep buying government bonds, hoping for interest rates to turn out. And it doesn't lend well to the middle tier of healthier borrowers between the government and the distressed borrowers in the private space. They either get credit rationed altogether or they have to pay excessive costs. Now, when the situation of undercapitalization is prolonged, so I'm talking about three, five, seven years, the way we have seen it in India, what it does is that it actually starts eating away the growth potential of the heavily indebted sectors. The reason is that clearly this scale of undercapitalization can be reached only if some sectors have gone bad. So in case of India, because of the 
fiscal stimulus around 2009 to 12. These loans were in infra, steel, power, and several other brick and mortar industry sectors of the economy. First, the distressed borrowers were kept afloat through extension of their loans and pretending by banks that everything is all right. Some of them even got extra credit beyond the rollover of their old loans. Now, when zombie firms like this are kept alive in a sector, the sector's capacity doesn't adjust to the new demand reality for that sector. And because these zombie firms stay alive, even the healthier firms lose their margins and pricing power because there's excess capacity in the sector. Capacity utilization is very, very low. So there needs to be a little bit of a natural, if I could use the term creative destruction in these sectors, that banks need to file the borrowers into bankruptcy. The worst borrowers need to either get liquidated in some cases or acquired by the healthier borrowers through concentration, not over, you don't need excessive concentration, but you do want healthier borrowers to be rewarded so that they get their pricing power back. When they get their pricing power back, they start the process of private investments, employment and productivity enhancing measures again. But absent that force, when a banking sector remains undercapitalized for a prolonged period, you find that the sectors now start their own downward spiral themselves. And now the supply and the demand factors are very, very hard to separate. You don't know whether it's banks that is causing the slowdown or it's the lack of adequate private investment and productivity in these sectors that's causing the loans of the banks to go bad further. And then the banks are becoming even more risk averse to actually lend to the healthier borrowers in this sector. So without having done a definitive analysis that nails the issue in case of India, the situation looks very similar to Japan in 90s and Europe post-global financial crisis. My assessment is that the situation has certainly contributed to the slowdown. But as I was saying, it becomes a downward spiral. And I see some merit for this argument because you can see that our less indebted sectors, such as, say, information technology or pharma, these sectors have done very, very well, regardless of actually what the global economic cycle has been and what the domestic economic cycle has been. But the brick and mortar industries, which got embroiled with the debt during the fiscal stimulus of 2009 to 12, and which the banking sector never really cleaned up, these sectors are the ones that are no longer contributing to healthy private sector investment, productivity and growth in the economy. What do you think the Modi government could have done differently to relieve the stress in the financial sector and specifically on the matter of the non-performing assets? Has the government been too slow in cleaning them up? Is there some different path that you would have advocated? See, as I describe in my book, we did start out on a very solid footing during my time at the Reserve Bank of India, especially in the first 10 to 12 months when I was there, which is from January 17 to about March to April of 18. The asset quality review work had been started under previous governor, Governor Rajan, starting in 2014-15. That was coming to an end around the time I joined. But then it was very clear that now the bad assets which were sitting in the industries I mentioned, steel, power, infra, etc., had to be resolved because the real economy had to start generating growth, investment and productivity enhancing measures. Now, there were several measures that were taken in the right direction that time, in my view. Of course, the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Code had been implemented in December 16. 
that was supposed to be the linchpin of the program for the resolution of bad assets. Banks were supposed to be recapitalized, especially the public sector banks with government money. And for a change, the recapitalization money was to go to the healthier public sector banks, leaving the really poor quality, underperforming ones to be kept in a prompt corrective action so that, you know, they didn't bleed further and cause further hemorrhaging or loss of taxpayer money. And simultaneously, banks were supposed to go to the markets and also raise some more capital. So instead of government stakes becoming larger and larger with each recapitalization, they could actually come down and maybe get closer to just above majority, if not below majority. However, there was a change in the overall support for these measures starting somewhere in 2018, where we tended to regress. I think there was an attempt to make the resolution of the NPS more sector specific. Insolvency and bankruptcy code doesn't distinguish between different sectors when it comes to filing for bankruptcy. But it was felt that the Reserve Bank of India, while cleaning up the bank balance sheets, should treat certain sectors differently than others. Of course, this is not a comfortable choice for a banking regulator which has unelected officials or technocrats in the job to be making such choices. Second, the recap money, instead of going to the healthier public sector banks, started going to the weaker public sector banks so that they could be brought out of prompt corrective action and start lending again. But of course, because there isn't so much recap money to go around, the healthier banks were not able to improve their credit growth and their underwriting standards tend to be superior than those of the weaker public sector banks. And so there was a credit allocation problem that got started all over again. And third, hardly any market capital was raised. So this push that was agreed upon to not let government stakes become higher and higher was also not followed. And finally, there is one sector that over especially the course of the present government has been receiving repeated forbearances, and that is actually the micro, small and medium-sized enterprises sector. The forbearances started in 2016. To the best of my knowledge, every year there has been a forbearance package for this sector where you say that their bad loans will not be recognized by the banking sector. Objectively speaking, using data from private credit bureaus, the bank losses on these asset class have been on the order of 20 to 25% for public sector banks, but only a small fraction of it has been recognized as non-performing. And, you know, one-off forbearance can be justified based on some shocks, but you can't have it five years in a row. Then you are just giving incentives to these firms not to improve, to keep getting credit without actually upping their game in terms of their competitiveness as a whole. So there are many complex reasons as to why this regression came about. But I think it has to be acknowledged that we were on a good path. That's the good sign of it, that we did agree upon embarking on a good path, but we didn't complete the job. And unfortunately, the pandemic hit before we've actually cleaned up the legacy loans. Viral, I want to go forward, but first still, I want to push you a little bit on the past cleanup process and bringing the credit back to life. Do you think that the recapitalization could have been done sooner in larger volumes? I remember when I came, you know, in 2015 to the Niti Aayog, I had felt that this Indra Dhanush that they launched, which provided for just 70,000 crore rupees for recapitalization was too little. Eventually, of course, you know, it was then raised to 2 lakh crore or 2 trillion rupees, but that was a little bit late. Also on the NPA cleanup, it seemed to me that at least Internally, some of us were actually saying that, look, you know, get down to it now. That was in 2015. 
but the actual process really didn't start till you had arrived and somewhere like March, April 2017 is, uh, is roughly when the real action began to happen. Could both of these recapitalization and NPA cleanup, could that not have happened a little sooner? Absolutely. I'm fully uh, on sync with you, Erwin. In fact, there is a view out there that one reason why the efforts that we put in place regress because we were too fast. That Indian system is not capable of actually such a fast change. And my usual response to them is, listen, guys, these bad loans were created seven to eight years back. If someone is trying to clean it up and you think it's too fast and the process is not yet complete, clearly they have been very, very slow, you know, because even a reasonable pace cleanup should have been over by now. Let me talk about the recap money first. I think the problem with the recap money is that what happens is that it gets approved at the time of the budget or as an extraordinary item during the year. But then this budget sits somewhere in the ministry and doesn't get immediately deployed as injections into the public sector bank balance sheets. What happens is that it gets used more like an IV drip rather than as a significant blood transfusion. And invariably, it comes in at the end of quarters when some balance sheet parameters have to be fixed so that certain kinds of bonds are not defaulting upon. They get used with a lot of discretion to put it into the weaker public sector banks so that, you know, in a timely manner, you can get them out of prompt corrective action, get a little bit of one or two quarters of lending to take place to make some numbers look all right in the economy. I think when the package was agreed, I think it was September or October of 2017, you know, the injection should have happened pretty much right away after that. There was a very clear spreadsheet that was a part of the discussions between the central bank and the finance ministry as to who's supposed to get what amount of capital. As I said, most capital was to go as growth capital to the healthier public sector banks. In fact, when the package was announced, it was publicly stated by the finance ministry that this is how the capital allocation will take place. But then the money never really went. Even when boards of public sector banks had approved, they will raise X amount of market fundraising. You should see that every time they say that, it's always with a three to four quarters horizon. And I'm like, market valuations are going to change by that time. What does it, what do you achieve if you just agree on raising capital down the year? You have to raise it right away when you need the capital, at least especially when the market valuations are attractive as they were after the package was announced. In fact, when the package was announced, just one bank, State Bank of India, had on a single day experienced one-third increase in its stock price. It was a 35% stock price appreciation, I remember. So I think it was a golden opportunity wasted, in my view, not just with Indra Dhanush, but then also with this uh, second package of October 18. And, and I think there is some tendency in the bureaucracy to not get going with things and do things in a decisive manner when it comes to recapitalization. They want to have the funds to themselves to use it selectively to do patchwork at the quarter ends, as I was describing. On the NPA cleanup, also I fully agree that perhaps because the insolvency and bankruptcy code wasn't yet in place until December 2016, it was felt that the Reserve Bank of India could stitch together some private restructuring packages. You know, there are these acronyms SDR, S4A, none of them worked very well. Banks basically use them once again to simply keep parking their non-performing assets in a way that simply did not work. And I think the approach that we followed starting 2017, which was to use the insolvency and bankruptcy code as the backbone for the resolution of stressed assets 
was absolutely the right one because it's not just important to recognize the assets as bad loans on the bank balance sheet. You also have to resolve the distress of the underlying firms in the real sector because as I was saying, until the sectors remain full of zombie firms, you don't get the private investment impulses going. So I tend to agree with you on both these fronts. In the end, we did make a push in 17 and part of 18, but overall the process seems to have slowed down uh, thereafter. The other pre-existing pre-IBC processes, 12 big, big loans that in your time the RBI had pushed for, for the bankruptcy code proceedings. Yeah, I think we are we are it's working quite well, I would say, for the especially for the smaller cases. I think banks are able to get much quicker resolution and recovery on the smaller cases. I think on the larger cases, perhaps because of the nature of arbitration and sometimes frivolous arbitration, I would say, being engaged in by the promoters of these firms, I think the larger cases are taking far longer than what the original insolvency and bankruptcy code had envisaged. No, that is true. But even so, you know, the fact that eight out of the 12 big cases have been resolved now, compared to what we used to observe, you know, I mean, I remember reading about the Iradi committee, which was in 2000, and that the kind of resolutions were happening at that time, on average 15 years, the bad ones, there were about 10 to 15% of the cases which were taking more than 25 years. So I think this is big progress. But let me move forward. So so then we, of course, went into COVID and that has had its own problems that got exacerbated during this period. Now, of course, there was, again, some forbearance done. Also, some one-time restructuring without downgrading of the assets to substandard category was allowed. Nevertheless, it seems to me that there is going to be eventually more bankruptcies, more NPAs. Is there a case now for moving faster on some recapitalization, uh, particularly of the public sector banks in advance? Absolutely. In fact, I have been pushing for this not just in India. I have been pushing for it in developed economies as well. I think throughout the world, the approach has been to give a soft lending to the borrowers. Some of it is, of course, justified. In some countries, it has been a bit more excessive where you know, even junk-rated issuers are actually tapping into the markets in the United States at, you know, ultra-low rates, even low rates uh, prior to COVID. And that seems just mispricing of risk because of some sort of central bank or government guarantees. Uh, Some of these loans will turn out bad for sure. And, you know, banks have to be kept prepared for bearing these losses so that as and when the vaccinations happen, the pent-up demand returns all over the world in a synchronized fashion, the way it collapsed in a synchronized manner to start with. You know, at that point, you want the banking sector to be able to support growth uh, rather than acting to risk averse. So this has been my same principle in the prescription for India, which is that well and good, maybe it was necessary to give a soft lending to the corporates, MSMEs, and even retail borrowers, either through debt restructuring or debt moratoria. But many of these borrowers will get into trouble. COVID is not a zero-one switch that doesn't change the outcomes after the switch is back on because there are structural shifts taking place in the economy. It's not at all clear that certain kinds of services will have the same levels of usage such as air travel right after the vaccinations are done. E-commerce is picking up in a very heavy manner all over the world, including in India. And so there will be some uh, sectoral shocks which would produce concentrated losses for individual banks. RBI's financial stability report, which 
You can imagine being a central bank report tends to be somewhat conservative in estimation of losses, has already estimated that post-pandemic, the non-performing assets may range in 125 to 14.5% range. So I think we need to prepare now. I think market are very benign for capital raising. I think the government, besides finding some money to recapitalize, if there is any, could consider a blueprint for divesting stakes. I know, Arvind, you have regularly said that why can't the government just sell small quantities of its shares on the market at whatever the prevailing prices are, you know, and just selling it in a steady manner as per some kind of almost like an algorithm should exonerate those who are taking the decisions from having to answer at what price they took a very big divestment decision. And I think that is the right approach. Several reform committees in the past have said the government could first start by diluting stakes down to 30%, 25%, simultaneously improve the governance of these banks, get a toehold in from some institutional investors who may have financial, technological and governance expertise to bring to the table. And then, you know, why can't we even at least conceptually lay out a blueprint for, you know, what would be a time horizon for maybe even considering some reprivatizations as, you know, seeing how to go about doing this. I think the main departure I see from our previous banking episodes and this one is that precisely because we never used to address the past problems in a decisive manner, in the history of our public sector banks, what has happened is the scale of the problem has become larger and larger and larger with time. And therefore, the burden on the fiscal exchequer to keep recapitalizing them is getting to be too much now. My assessment is that we injected close to 4 lakh crores over the last 10-12 years. And we have to also factor in the opportunity cost of that money because you could have invested that in an index or into the healthier private sector bank index. So when you total that up, it comes to around $100 billion over a 10-year. Now, you might say, okay, that is a reasonable cost for mopping up a massive banking sector crisis. But the point is we have still not mopped it up fully. And so how long can we go on in this manner? I think we have to recognize that we need to let the private sector come in just the way we have let it into other non-banking sectors. And many of these sectors have thrived and delivered growth for the economy. Let me ask you a bit about that, just to kind of maybe to elaborate. So by all indicators, including especially on NPAs, public sector banks have performed relatively poorly compared to their private sector counterparts. And so, you know, one can find many faults with private banks, but on average, they seem to have performed better than PSBs. What do you see broadly for the sake of our listeners? What are the reasons for this difference in performance? And narrowly, what do you think the government ought to be doing to this particular issue about public sector banks? Yes. See, firstly, I would agree that there are problems in private sector banks sometimes. They also relate to poor governance. My assessment is that they are more idiosyncratic problems rather than a systemic problem endemic to the private sector banks. And the good news is that The central bank has powers to actually identify and get rid of the rogue operators, replace them, bring in other investors or banks who want to acquire the stakes of these private sector banks. And so there is some resolution of these problem cases that is achieved in case of private sector banks. The real problem, in my view, in case of public sector banks is threefold. One is that the regulation and the governance is is all over the place. 
we have the central bank doing a part of the regulation, but it doesn't have the same rights over public sector banks as it does over private sector banks, because under the Banking Nationalization Act, those rights, such as the right to replace management, the right to get a dilution of equity by bringing in fresh investors, etc., all those rights reside with the principal shareholder, which is the government or the finance ministry in, in an operational sense. Second, the boards of public sector banks are not terribly empowered, because a lot of the delivery of the social programs, especially for farmers, MSMEs, etc., get determined through the Department of Financial Services in the finance ministry. Now, that's not a great way to go. I think my sense is a better way to go would be to say that the government is paying the entire banking sector, whoever wants to be eligible to run these programs, a certain amount of money to run these programs. And the boards of public sector banks can decide if they want to actually deliver these mandates or not. So I think there is sometimes a confusion of objectives because, you know, public sector banks can't be generating very high profits when on a routine basis they have to open branches or to do certain kinds of lending, which doesn't generate the shareholder return that a private bank can. And third, I would say is that Essentially, there is a lack of incentives which has destroyed the overall culture inside the public sector banks. The terms of the CEO or the managing directors are very short. Very often, they start out with balance sheets that are extremely weak. So they are very risk averse to start with. At times when economic conditions are benign and credit growth is picking up, they feel that delivering on double digit or Beyond 20% credit growth numbers will be their ticket onto managing a bigger bank afterwards. And so there's a complete, I would say, travesty of incentives because they keep flipping from being extremely risk averse to being sort of very greedy in terms of lending too much. And, and, you know, we keep going through these boom and bust cycles, therefore. So I'm convinced that in the end, we have to accept that this nationalization model which was adopted by Mrs. Gandhi in 60s and 70s. I think objectively speaking, it was for political purposes, even though over time, everyone in India has been justifying it on the basis of development and financial inclusion goals. But even those goals have not really been achieved that decisively. A credit to GDP ratio for India as a whole is still below 60%. If you go to Northeast India, credit to GDP penetration in many cases is in single digit numbers. And while I agree that public sector banks have opened branches in many areas where private banks wouldn't venture, I think we have to ask the question, what has been the cost of achieving all this? Could we have used this money to create a better banking system by giving incentives to go and operate in these areas? rather than doing things by fiat for public sector banks through the Department of Financial Services. So I'm convinced that this is a failed experiment. We have to try and do something different. If we don't do it after 50 years, then when will we learn our lessons? And the first step has to be an improvement in the governance of these banks, a distancing of the finance ministry from the strategy and operations of these banks, gradual dilutions, by selling stakes in the markets. And eventually, when the bank's balance sheet is ready, even do some sample reprivatizations to see how to make it work for the banking sector as a whole. So, Viral, if I look at the history, we can go back almost two decades. There have been committee after committee recommending these reforms of the banking sector, the public sector banks in particular. 
very little has happened. The last big report was by NIAC committee and it had laid down a path to bringing these banks into some sort of special purpose vehicle and ultimately bringing them the same governance that applies to the private sector banks and so forth. At least, you know, also my own experience of working inside the government that when you try to reform within the system, it just doesn't happen or it happens so incredibly gradually. So would it not be fair to say that really in the end what they need to do is to start privatizing these banks? And particularly, you know, as an example, currently the government has 12 banks in the public sector. The bottom six of these, they represent only 15% of the public sector bank assets. So they're really small. Those six could actually be privatized and those six are probably also the ones which <laughs> disproportionately kind of bleed the taxpayer money. This could potentially be privatized. It will serve as an experiment and for the government in terms of assets, it's not a big loss. And out of the six, if two or three banks really take off in the private sector, that would actually make big progress for the financial sector. Yes, I, I think I would by and large be in favor of actually starting somewhere. I think, as you said, we have had committees after committees. And, you know, one of the observations inside the central bank when I was there used to always be that every committee had actually recommended we do away with the Department of Financial Services and instead have the investment shares being managed by a professional asset manager like a sovereign wealth fund who is at arm's length from the governance of these entities. But every time a report came out and recommended that instead the department actually expanded its mandate to do to do more stuff. And I think that shows the problem of the undertaking reforms within the system, as you described with the present ownership structure. I think some examples have worked well. I think uh, Excess Bank, as we know, was resolution of a prior institution that was under government and went bust. And then it was resolved with government shedding its stake over a period of time. You know, so we, we have evidence that this can potentially work well. I think the only word of caution would be that in many countries where the privatizations have been undertaken, not just for banks, but even in other sectors. If in the end, the government doesn't remain at arm's length, then many of these privatizations ultimately fail. And then, you know, invariably, they either go back into the hand of the government or the government ends up bailing them out in any case. So I think that is the only word of caution I would have, uh, that maybe we have to first distance the government, put in place the right incentives and governance mechanisms to so have professionally appointed, empowered boards in place and simultaneously bring in the private players, whether we do it all these steps together or whether we address incentives and governance first and then we reprivatize. I'm somewhat agnostic, partly because I think many different approaches may work as long as the combination is implemented in the right way. And we have to start somewhere. Right now, we don't have a blueprint. We don't have as much urgency other than, you know, maybe amongst the three of us. And, you know, we need to, we need to get going. So, Viral, now just switching gears a little bit, there has been a proposal now very recently by one of the working groups in the Reserve Bank of India that we now allow the corporates to have their own banks. Under the current regulation, the big corporate houses like Reliance or Adani, etc. are not allowed banking licenses and they have been pitching that this be allowed. This working group has commended that we move in that direction. Maybe you can 
tell us what your view is. I mean, this is really, again, in the context of giving a further fillip to the financial sector. If as the economy grows larger and larger, we would need financial capital. And I suppose that is the motivation for bringing in the corporate sector to become a part of the financial sector as well, given the fact that the household savings have not been doing very well after peaking in 2007-8. The household savings have really declined, particularly household financial savings have seen a significant decline. So perhaps if some of the corporate equity could come into here, into the financial sector, maybe that will help a bit. So any thoughts on that issue? Yes, I would be quite against this proposal as we have expressed in this recent note with Dr. Rajan. I think the main reason is that, you know, banks, while very important to have healthy credit growth on the back of the deposit savings that they get, you know, we have been discussing all along the problem of non-performing assets of our large corporates. And, you know, many of our best corporates also have subsidiaries that have not actually done that well over the last 10 years. They are themselves in many cases non-performing assets. And something that is not fully appreciated is that a lot of fraud that happens through bank loans, which is that the depositor money gets channeled through credit to a borrower, a corporate borrower, and you know ultimately the money is nowhere to be found. It's somehow lost in the labyrinth of related party transactions that our industrial houses do amongst their subsidiaries. It happens precisely because there is a lot of capacity to move money around very easily once it is borrowed by one arm of a large industrial house. Now, at least right now, we have a distance between the lender and the borrower once you enter this labyrinth. Once you marry the borrower and the lender, so the industrial house itself is the controlling shareholder of the bank, my sense is this is going to become very rampant. Uh, the self-dealing will become a much bigger, bigger issue. I, I fully acknowledge that there is a need for bringing in more capital into our banks. But as we have been discussing, we have several examples of successful private banks, maybe not every single one, but some of them are actually valued at among the best market to book ratios in the world as far as banking sector is concerned. And I'm confident that we can still bring arm's length investors who are at a distance from the borrowers to bring in equity into our banks, be it public sector banks or private sector banks. And that would be a better separation of control of the firm and the usage of the funds that are provided in the end. I think we don't want to be in a situation where a large industrial house gets access to deposit insurance without any checks and balances that the banks provide on the loans. Uh, This would basically look like socialization of losses and privatization of profits, in my view. It seems to me that it's it's a step too far. You know, some of the corporate houses do have their non-bank finance companies, they are subject to certain rules and restrictions on you know how big this activity can be as a part of their industrial organization. And that seems overall to me a much more prudent way to go, given that we are finding it very difficult actually to deal with getting money back from our corporates to come back to the bank. But that's a broader problem, right? So let me just quickly touch on two issues here. One is that Corporates through different NBFCs, right? They are there in the financial markets. Perhaps there you are saying that, in fact, that is precisely the experience that makes you think back, that makes you think that uh, extending this further to the banks is actually a bad idea. Maybe so you can elaborate on that. But also related, is there not a regulation, right? I mean, if, if you were to actually require 
that corporates can borrow only from banks that are not owned by any of the corporates, you could probably get around the problem of corporates lending themselves kind of problem. Am I wrong? So two points, Arvind. One, let me start with the second one, which is that basically, as, as I said, it becomes a labyrinth, you know, and becomes very hard to actually track the money because it is so fungible. You know, even in insolvency and bankruptcy code, there are attempts with the defaulted promoters to do a run around the restriction on them to buy back the firm by basically having like a surrogate firm that's basically acquiring the firm with their money. And, you know, these kinds of things are very easy to to arbitrage. Uh, and, you know, that there would be a whole activity that is devoted just to constructing this arbitrage so that people can get around this. So I'm, I'm not so confident that actually aggravating the borrower opacity problem to what is likely to be a natural arbitrage of these kinds of restrictions would be the way to tackle this problem as a whole. The concern seems to be one of timing. It seems that perhaps given the stress in the NBFC space over the last two, three years, the stress that the economy is witnessing because of COVID shock and the likely shock to demand that has occurred, that perhaps some of the corporates which are not doing as well as they might have now want to basically get access to the cheap deposits, that would be a tremendous franchise to add to their liability side. And, you know, that would actually be effectively like a bailout of these corporates in the process. So I just err on the side of caution. I think we first need to deal with our banking sector in a manner that we know we have dealt with legacy loans problem well. This looks to me a little bit like policy adventurism in the middle of that. Even the best of the banking regulators find it hard to last mile loan supervision. And, you know, we just know that the governance standards in the country are not actually as high as we would like in terms of transparency, auditing, counting, etc. I mean, the way I read it is even if at some point we may want to do it, this is not the right time to do it. Yeah, I would I would not be in favor of it at all. But right now, it seems to me that the desire for doing this now might have come about because some corporates may actually be worried about their books in the first place. So you would have a particularly adverse selection problem in figuring out. Yes, yes. Switching gears a bit, you know, both of you talked a bit about the NBFC sector. And first, I wanted to ask you, Viral, if you could, for the sake of benefit of our listeners, clarify a bit what the role of the NBFCs is relative to banks and what your view is in terms of what the government ought to be doing with respect to managing, regulating the NBFC sector to prevent the sorts of issues that seem to have arisen from the NBFC sector and kind of driving economic problems in the country. So, you know, the simplest way to think about uh, shadow banking or the non-bank finance sector is that the banking sector gets a benefit, which is access to the deposit contract. And, you know, it comes with an explicit deposit insurance, by and large, because banks are the primary entities in the payment and settlements mechanism dealing with the central bank directly for reserves and circulation of money. You know, they are given, they are never by and large allowed to fail on the deposit contract. But of course, this privilege of getting access to cheap savings comes with cost, which is that you have to maintain certain prudential standard that is in the form of higher liquidity requirements. There has to be greater skin in the game for the shareholders or the owners of these banks. The non-bank finance is essentially 
an activity in which basically you don't have the privileged access to deposits, barring a few early non-bank finance companies in India whose deposit access was grandfathered eventually, the new non-bank finance companies in India don't have access to deposit funding. But it also then comes with relatively light touch regulation. The liquidity requirements are not as onerous on the non-banks and the capital requirements are actually higher than that for banks, but they are not graded by the specific nature of the assets they have, even though on both capital and liquidity front, there has been some tightening over the last few years. The way the NBFC sector grew and created value in India was primarily through what one might call as collateralized lending. They started lending against specific asset classes such as gold, tractors, autos, you know, various kinds of equipments used in uh, industrial manufacturing and so on. Their expertise was basically in raising wholesale finance in the market. So they would get, typically they were issuing long-term corporate bonds and then they would go and make collateralized lending and they were good at doing both last mile lending as well as recovery of collateral probably even at sale if you had to ultimately recover from your borrower when the company defaulted. And, you know, some of them also got into the housing sector space, again, very heavily collateralized loan by the underlying real estate. What has happened, though, is that world over, see, when shadow banking is a small portion of the credit growth in the economy, so it's let's say it's up to 5% or 10%, If there's a shock to the shadow banking sector, it doesn't add up to something dramatic for the economic growth. But during this last 10 years, when Indian banking sector, especially the public sector banks, have been relatively undercapitalized and they have not been lending to the middle tier of the borrowers, as I mentioned, the healthier private sector borrowers, or at least not lending to them at the right cost, the non-bank finance companies have grown significantly to capture their share. Partly because, you know, their capital is not differentiated by the risks that they take and they don't have to hold a ton of liquidity on their balance sheet for doing the lending, unlike banks, because they are vulnerable to depositor uh, panic. So when the shock happened to the NBFC sector, and I describe it in some detail in my book, my sense is that what happened is that, and it's a very complex mix of undercapitalized banking system with, with demonetization. That demonetization created a lot of flood of money that got formalized into the banking system. But banks were not in a, in a capacity to lend that money because they didn't have capital. So they got deposits when the money was put into the formal system, but they didn't have capital to make loans. And so they started slashing the deposit rates because they didn't want excess flood of deposits that they would have to keep servicing without actually earning much higher returns because of the lack of ability. Now, as the deposit rates fell, uh, the savers in the economy started demanding higher yield and there grew this category of debt liquid mutual fund. So debt liquid mutual funds are just like money market funds in the United States. They basically say, I will give you a deposit-like contract You can, I'm investing mostly in quote unquote safe paper, but I'll give you 50 basis points extra compared to what you are earning on your deposit with the bank. Now, what did this debt liquid funds do? They started on in turn lending money to non-bank finance companies and housing finance companies. In fact, when I was at the central bank, we saw that in the year 2017, post demonetization, our non-bank finance companies, which used to issue primarily corporate bonds of longer maturity, they switched 50% of their borrowing 
to short-term commercial paper of less than one-year maturity, typically, in fact, less than 90 days of maturity. And then when inflation in the economy rose, oil prices rose during 2018, interest rates had to be raised, the rollover costs for the short-term money became very high, and you know they were not able to meet their maturity mismatch problem. In fact, what very often happens with easy liquidity conditions is that the non-bank finance and the housing finance companies' underwriting standards also went for a toss. And now it was no longer a small problem. It was between 15 to 20 percent of the overall credit growth of the economy. And, you know, it, it did have its growth pangs for the economy. So to cut a long story short, I think it's a very important part of credit creation in the Indian economy. It has also gone through a boom and bust cycle over the last five years of its own. It has finally finding its feet back up after, uh, I would say, two to two and a half years of gradual stabilization. But it needs to be in better shape, especially on capital and liquidity front, so that it doesn't face such a fragility episode all over again. So are there any reforms you would suggest the government ought to do at this stage to, to ensure that the recovery that has been underway in the NBFC sector continues uh, smoothly? Yes, Arvind. Uh, several of us have been pushing actually for an asset quality review of the non-bank finance companies because it's very clear that especially in the housing finance space, but perhaps also in some corporate lending space, a lot of bad loans were made with the easy money during 2017. For a while, the market lost confidence as to which NBFCs are in good shape and which ones are not. Right now, we have extremely low interest rates in the economy in a real sense. And so everyone is able to borrow. There is, in fact, a pool of money being earmarked through bank lending, specifically for on lending to NBFCs, etc. So things have improved temporarily because of the easy liquidity conditions. But I think we need to know once and for all which NBFCs are in good shape and which ones are not. If you keep reading the Indian newspapers, every now and then there are accounts of specific NBFCs which have actually not recognized their bad loans in a good manner. Several of the housing finance companies have actually had difficulties with enforcement actions being taken against some of their promoters or in process of being questioned by the enforcement agencies. Uh, I think it is not an ideal state to have a significant part of your financial sector be in just the way we need to be earnest with marking the books of our banks. We also need to be very earnest with marking the books of our non-bank finance companies. Two things that would be needed, though, is that we would have to be very clear that once you recognize the asset quality, what would be done with the weaker NBFCs? Perhaps you would need some kind of a prompt corrective action framework for the extremely weak ones. The relatively healthier ones who have experienced capital losses if their books are marked properly, they should just go to the market and raise capital ASAP, in my view. Wonderful. That was great. Thank you. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Viral. This is really outstanding conversation. Thank you, Praveen and Arvind, for the opportunity. So for our listeners, Dr. Viral Acharya's book, Quest for Restoring Financial Stability in India, is available for purchase on Amazon.com. Thank you, Praveen, for that. For the listeners, I recommend especially Dr. Vaivi Reddy's forward to the book. I consider it the best part of my book. And I also want to mention my share of proceeds from the book are earmarked for an education NGO in India called Pratham. Its motto is to have every Indian child in school and learning well, provides education as well as skilling for underprivileged children and youth all over the country. Uh, thank you so much for your consideration. That's an outstanding cause, Viral. Thank you very much.
Well, it appears that that's all the time we have for today's episode of Transforming India podcast. Signing off, this is Praveen Krishna. And this is Arvind Panagaria on the Transforming India podcast, produced by Atisha Kumar, research scholar at Columbia University, and edited by Rebecca Megalwari at Insights at Columbia University. Thank you for listening.